Tonight we will continue our study of the life of Christ, and we're going to be looking uh, at a, a part of his life that I call the childhood. And I call it this because we're dealing with a portion of his infancy, ultimately, um, that often gets attributed to his birth, but really is a separate part of his childhood altogether. And that has a lot to do with the wise men who visited him. So we're going to spend some time focused on Matthew chapter 2 tonight, particularly the first 12 or so verses. And let's begin by reading that section of Scripture. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was, is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So let's spend some time uh, examining the events that surround uh, this, this episode in the childhood of Jesus. And we'll do it this way. We'll first ask, who were the wise men? Now, some of your translations might refer to them as magi. There's no difference in terminology here. The Greek term, the phrase, excuse me, the phrase wise men derives from the Greek word magos, which is transliterated as magi for us. And this term was originally the name of a Persian priestly caste. It's a group uh, uh, in Persia. This was a terminology used to refer to a specific group of individuals that were along the same uh, or on the same parallel uh, um, caste system, if you would, or, or um, oh, I cannot think of my term right now. That happens to me a lot. Um, but on the same uh, social realm as priests. This term originally for uh, this priestly group, but it later began to be used for magicians and astrologers, astrologers and numerous Western Asian countries had a group known as the wise men or magi. Now, the one thing that's worth really pointing out is that the magi were not kings. They were a combination of wise men and priests. Uh, one scholar pointed out that they combined astronomical observation with astrological speculation, and that they played both political and religious roles in their culture. It's interesting because this same Greek term that appears here in Matthew chapter 2 in reference to these individuals who come to visit Jesus is also used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to some other individuals. Esther chapter 1 and verse 13 makes reference to some wise men, as does Daniel chapter 2 and verse 12. And both of those stories are set in the context of, of, of Persia. And, and so we see it from an Old Testament perspective this group known as wise men making appearances. But you'll also see this term used and applied to an individual in Acts chapter 13, an individual who is known as Bar-Jesus, who Paul and Barnabas met in Paphos when they were on the island of Crete. He, he also is called Elimus the magician. So we see this term used elsewhere in Scripture to a group of people or to an individual. But ultimately, it descends from this, this group of, of magicians and astrologers and priests that were once a part of the Persian culture. Uh, 
And though I've thrown out this term, per, this reference to Persia multiple times, the next question that's worth asking is where were these wise men from? Were they, in fact, from Persia or some other area around there? One thing we know is that they were from where? Not a trick question. Where, where does the text say they're from? East. Now, the phrase used here that they're from the east could literally be translated, they're from the rising of the sun. So, just because it says, the, just because our translations use the phrase east, we have a concept of what that means, but it may not be the exact same thing. All we, all we know is that these individuals were from an easterly direction away from Israel. That's the concept being conveyed here. It doesn't mean they're from the Orient, necessarily. So there are some options that scholars have considered regarding where these individuals may have come from. And I'm going to share with you four areas that are often equated with the origins of these wise men. So using this map, you'll notice uh, that Israel is right here in this little purple stretch on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, obviously Jesus is born in Bethlehem, just south, five miles south of Jerusalem. So anything easterly of Israel on this map would qualify as a place the wise men could come from. And the first option that many scholars will point to is Arabia, as they would refer to it. Essentially the peninsula of Arabia. And you can see Arabia actually mentioned in the New Testament in a couple of instances. In particular, in Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, there's a reference to uh, people from Arabia who were among those that heard the gospel message on the day of Pentecost. But Arabia for us would include modern-day Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Oman, and Yemen. That area is a possibility of where these guys came from. A second possibility is what would be called Mesopotamia. This would uh, include the areas that were once part of Babylon and Persian empires. And this is the, 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 the one that makes, when we make reference to a, a Persian caste system that this terminology descended from, this is the area it's talking about. This would be the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This is the area of those uh, nations that well, that in part conquered Israel in the Old Testament and that reigned as a world empires for such a long time. Modern-day equivalents of this area would be Iraq and Kuwait, and then uh, that would be the second option that is often considered. A third option is known as Parthia. This would be the area of the Medes and the Elamites. It's mentioned also in Acts chapter 2 in verse 9 as one of the areas that some Jews had come from to Jerusalem and were present on the day of Pentecost for Peter's sermon. And this area would include modern-day Iran, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Then there is a fourth option called Scythia. It is north of the area of Parthia, and it's mentioned, there is mention of this area in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. This area would include the modern-day countries of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and then some other stands. Um, this, this is the area up near the Caspian Sea. So these are the options. All of them would qualify as the east. Some would be further east than others, and so on. The most likely scenario, though, whether or not this information is hugely beneficial or even if it matters, I share it because it just helps us orientate what's going on here. But most scholars, I, oh, I don't need to say that yet. There are a couple of early Christian authors who claimed that the wise men were from Arabia. But there were others who claimed they were from Persia, the Mesopotamia category here. And that's the one that most scholars associate with these guys. Most scholars will concede that these wise men came from the Mesopotamian region, the area known as Persia. And there is some theological significance to that fact. The significance of a Persian origin of these men, 
has to do with the fact that Persia figured prominently in the history of Israel. It was in Persia that Daniel prophesied via dreams the demise of all the worldwide kingdoms and the rise of God's kingdom during the time of the Roman Empire. It was the Persian king Darius who would permit the return of the exiled descendants of Israel to return to the promised land. It was in Persia that the bold mediation of a Jewish queen named Esther would save the chosen people from annihilation. So there's a, a lot of theological significance to these wise men coming from Persia. And if, in fact, that is where they came from, it's interesting to consider the distance they traveled. Because Susa, the, the ancient capital of Persia, just to pick a city in that um, region, it is some 900 miles from Jerusalem, which means that a hypothetical trip between these two cities would have taken two months to complete if traveling at an average speed of 15 miles per day. That's worth considering here. When we think about the shepherds arriving at uh, the, the birthplace of Jesus the night he was born, that's easy. When we think about these wise men, their travels cannot happen that, with that level of speed. It's going to take them multiple weeks to make the trip from where they're located to where Jesus is. And so we're looking at a pretty lengthy uh, trip for these guys. Now, one other thing that's interesting to me to consider about the wise men is whether or not they were Jewish or Gentile. It's not something we think about very often because naturally we assume they must be Gentile because they're coming from a different region. They're coming from the east. But consider this, the fact that in Acts chapter 2, all of these regions that I've shown you are mentioned as places that Jews came from to worship in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. See, by so early in the first century, the Jews have been so scattered over the years that they are living in various regions at this point. And so these wise men very well could have been Jewish individuals who live in one of these eastern areas. Think about this. Daniel himself would have been categorized as a wise man in the Persian Empire when he lived there because he was one of the elite. He was one of the ones that, for instance, Nebuchadnezzar went to to interpret dreams and that sort of thing. So Daniel himself could have categorically been a wise man despite his Jewish heritage. So there is some, uh, some credence to a Jewish individual being counted as a wise man in another country. Uh, so the fact that these magi came from the east doesn't prove that they were Gentiles since the Jews had been scattered abroad from the 8th to 6th centuries B.C., Many were actually deported to Assyria and uh, in, in Babylon. And, and when, as I mentioned, we see that scattering of individuals in Acts chapter 2. So it's possible that these individuals have a, a Jewish background, a Jewish heritage. But we often do associate them as, as a, a, a Gentile individual and a large reason that we assume them to be Gentiles is because they make reference to the king of the Jews. And they need to inquire about the birthplace of the Messiah. A Jewish individual wouldn't necessarily refer to the Messiah as the king of the Jews. And a, a person with a Jewish heritage would not necessarily need help figuring out where the Messiah is supposed to be born it would be assumed that they would have some level of knowledge about that, just as we see when these wise men arrive in Jerusalem and they're meeting with Herod, and then there's a discussion about where this Messiah is supposed to be born. Well, the, the, the Jewish people knew that. They were able to answer that. So there are some indicators that this, these wise men were not Jewish. Now, why am I wasting your time? 
with this information. I, I, I know that oftentimes I'll, I'll share things that really make you sit there and think, okay, what's the point? I bring this up because I, I do think they were Gentiles, and I think that's significant. Because when Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of Jewish heritage, is born, aside from those shepherds, the earliest recorded worshipers of Jesus are most likely Gentiles. So think about that in context. If they are Gentiles, then their ethnicity would be an indicator from the birth of Jesus that God sent him to save the whole world and not just the Jews. In this regard, their presence at Jesus's not birth, but at, his, at this early stage of his life, their, their presence would parallel Simeon's prophetic words about Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and verse 30, 31, and 32. Simeon, when Jesus was brought to the temple as a, a baby, Simeon said, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. See, when you read Luke's account of Jesus' birth, you have him being presented at the temple according to Jewish law, but there is a, 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 an individual there, Simeon, who prophesies that Jesus isn't just here for the Jews. He's here to save all people, Gentiles included. Matthew's gospel is a little different. And whereas... We'll talk momentarily about how these wise men likely were not there around the time of Jesus' birth. It was sometime after. But Matthew's gospel, as he's communicating the events around Jesus' childhood, interjects this story about wise men who most likely were Gentiles, as if in his own way he's showing that from the outset Jesus was here to save all people. And considering if these individuals were, in fact, Gentiles, here's the other thing that I find really neat. That means Matthew's gospel would be bookended with the worship of Gentiles at G when Jesus is a child here in Matthew chapter 2. And with a mission identifying the church's role in communicating the gospel to Gentiles right before his ascension in Acts chapter 28. Because it's there that Jesus gives the Great Commission and instructs his disciples to make disciples of all nations, not just of the Jewish people. And so Matthew's gospel would have these two events, one at the start of Jesus' life and one at the end of Jesus' life, that communicate in a way that, that his, his, uh, his life and his death and his resurrection were for all people, not just a select race. And it makes me wonder sometimes why it was such a struggle for Peter and for the early church to accept Gentiles when you have these kind of events taking place. So I do think there is some value in, recognize, in, in talking about whether or not these individuals were Jew, Jewish or Gentile in origin, because if in fact they are Gentiles, it has some theological significance to, to the story. With that being said, we, let's move on to this time frame of their visit. When did these wise men come to visit Jesus? Because the visit of the wise men is often portrayed as taking place the night Jesus was born. But if you look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, there's a significant statement there. It specifically says that after Jesus was born, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now let's be fair to the text for a second. After Jesus was born could simply mean after he's delivered. I mean, the, didn't the shepherds show up technically after Jesus was born? They didn't interrupt the birthing process. So anything after the point at which he enters the world and exits his, his mother's womb is after he's born. But let's consider the question, how long 
after his birth did these wise men arrive. And there are three things worth mentioning. First, they arrived to visit Jesus long enough after Jesus' birth for Joseph and Mary to secure accommodations in a house. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, we find out that by the time the wise men arrived, Joseph and Mary were in a house, which means they had time to leave any temporary lodging that they had before. Now, I'm going to concede something up front. Last week, we talked about where was it that Jesus was born. Uh, our nativity scenes like to depict a little uh, half-put-together barn that Jesus was born in. And that is the least likely scenario. Many animals were stored or were kept in caves, and that was often used as a place for animal safety and feeding and lodging. So it's possible that Jesus was born in a cave-like setting. But I also showed you what a first-century Jewish house would look like. And a first-century Jewish house had a first floor that was designed in part for storage, but also for securing animals. And there would be essentially a stable room inside that first floor of a Jewish house, and there would be likely a feeding trough or manger in there. So it's even possible that Jesus was born in a house on the first floor where animals were typically kept. Because on that same first floor, there would be a um, source of water. There would be a cistern of some sort. So Jesus could have been born in a house, which means that in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, where we have mention of a house, it could be the same house for all we know. But I want you to consider some things that have to happen in Jesus' life, early in his life. And I think this lends credence to the fact that there is some, uh, some time between uh, the, the events of Jesus' birth and the arrival of the wise men. See, consider what Joseph and Mary had to do immediately after the birth of Jesus in order to fulfill Mosaic law. I, I want you to think about, or I want you to read with me Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through uh, 4 to begin with, and we'll read a little bit more from this chapter in just a moment. But this is Mosaic law. This is what a woman would have to do after giving birth. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall be continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So let me summarize that. Mosaic law indicated that for the first seven days after the birth of a male child, the mother is unclean. And then Mosaic law indicated that on the eighth day after birth, the parents were required to circumcise their male child. And following the day of circumcision, the mother was deemed unclean for an additional 33 days for a total of 40 days, essentially. At the end of those 40 days, we can pick up the reading in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 6, and see what they have to do. When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he, he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So there are things that a woman has to do after giving birth in order to be pronounced clean, but she cannot do these until 40 days after birth. At the end of those days of her purifying, the mother is to present herself at the temple along with the prescribed sacrifice in order to be pronounced clean. That's what this 
section is ultimately saying. Now, what does this have to do with anything? If you go over to Luke chapter 2, and you read what Joseph and Mary do between verse 22 and verse 24, which I forgot to provide a slide for, so give me just a second and I'll read that with you. Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 22, 23, 24, we read about Joseph and Mary fulfilling the requirements of Leviticus chapter 12. That took a total of 40 days for them to complete. So my point in telling you this is that Joseph and Mary, after the birth of Jesus, couldn't just pack up and head back to Nazareth. They had to linger around uh, Jerusalem, which Bethlehem is only five miles away from. They had to linger around for a little more than a month because they had some business to take care of according to the Mosaic law. And so regardless of what facility Jesus is born in, they're going to need some longer accommodations than they had that night. And so, when we read in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 that they're in a house, one conclusion we can make is that they've had to find long-term lodging to some degree to accommodate the things they have to do at the temple. And for practical purposes, to give Mary time to heal following the birth of Jesus. So there are some things they have to do in and around Jerusalem that would make sense for them, regardless of the facility that Jesus was born in, to procure housing. And so what we know is that by the time these wise men arrive, they're in a house. That's the first thing that should influence our understanding of when the wise men came. So it seems to give um, credence to the wise men arriving not the night Jesus was born, but sometime thereafter that gives some distance between the night of Jesus' birth and their arrival. That's not the only piece of evidence we need to consider here, though, from the text. We also need to consider that the wise men arrived long enough after Jesus was born for Jesus to start being referred to as a child rather than a baby. If you look at that verse in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, when the wise men visited Jesus, they saw a child, we're told. That may not seem like a big deal, but it's worth pointing out that the Greek term used here in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 that is translated child is not the same Greek word that is used in Luke chapter 2 in reference to Jesus at his birth. The Greek word used here is pation, which means a young child, a little boy, or a little girl. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 12, in reference to Jesus when he was born, the Greek term used there is rephos, which is reference to a baby, even to a newborn child or an infant. So it's worth mentioning that by the time the wise men came, Jesus is no longer being referred to as a baby. He's being referred to as a child. But I, sh I must concede this as well. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 27, when they're doing all those things at the temple uh, for the purification process and, this, and related to Jesus' circumcision and all that, but during that 40 days that they have to do all those things, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 27, at the conclusion of those events, Jesus is being referred to as a child, not a baby, not a newborn. And so this Greek terminology that appears here is an indicator that Jesus has aged from the night of his birth. The fact that the wise men arrive 
And he's no longer being referred to with the Greek term for a newborn. Instead, he's being referred to with the term of a child. Means that there has been some time, maybe just a month, but it definitely is an indicator that they weren't there the night he was a newborn. And so that's the second piece of evidence that helps us understand that they were not there the night he was born. There's a third piece of evidence that potentially influenced this. They arrived to visit Jesus long enough after Jesus was born for Herod's calculation of his age to be up to two years old. You can see in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 7 that when they arrived in Jerusalem, they met with Herod, and Herod ascertained from them what time the star had appeared so he could calculate the birth of Jesus. And then if you skip down to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, we find out that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. In other words, there's a correlation between Herod's choice for an age of execution and the age of Jesus by this time, based on the information he gleaned from the wise men. So Herod's murder of all the children under two would hardly be necessary if the birth was known to be very recent. Now there's two concessions we have to make here. We don't know how much time passed between Herod's conversation with the wise men and his killing of these babies. It may have taken him a significant amount of time to come to the conclusion that the wise men were not returning to him. But we'll be talking about the character of Herod here in just a moment. And as we talk about that, it's in keeping with the character of Herod for him to carry out such an act of violence in a prompt fashion. So I don't think it took too long for Herod to go, all right, got to go kill these these children. The other concession I need to make is that Matthew's narrative does not necessarily indicate that a full two years had elapsed since the original sighting of the star by those wise men. Herod's speculation of age of the two-year mark need be no more than a, a kind of a rule of thumb for his soldiers to make sure that he doesn't miss this child. It may be that Jesus is only a couple months old, but Herod just says, all right, any child that's two years or younger, you need to kill, so I make sure I get him. Because some children look older than they really are, and some children look younger than they really are. Uh, Like, for instance, Leah, she's almost 14 months, but most people think she's much younger because she's a smaller baby. So it may be that Herod's just setting the two-year mark, not because that's exactly how old Jesus is, but because he wants to make sure that he gets enough age to include Jesus. So I offer those two concessions, but the wise men are arriving and, and, and communicating with Herod, and he's determining this age range for Jesus. This could help us understand that Jesus wasn't just a straight newborn that night. It may be that he was, uh, had some time built up. Not one of these things that I've mentioned about the, when the wise men come alone indicates exactly when. But taken together, we can get this idea that they weren't there the night Jesus was born, that they came sometime after Jesus was born. We don't know how many days or weeks or months after Jesus was born, but we know that it was after. It was sometime other than that specific night. Now, or let me rephrase that. I said we know that it was after. We know that it was not that specific night. I should probably say we know that it happened after because Matthew 2.1 says that. And it is most likely to be sometime after, not that exact night. Now let's consider this. Why did they come? Why did they come to see Jesus? Well, this one's clearly stated in Scripture, too, because they give us their purpose. They say in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 that they've come to worship he who has been born the king of the Jews. And when they found Jesus in verse 11, we're told that they fell down and worshiped him. I love reading about this. The Greek word translated worship here in this text is proskuneo, 
which literally means to, uh, to give reverence to. Uh, it means to um, express respect, to, um, to even prostrate oneself in, in homage to. There's a lot of meanings of this word, and it's, it's the word that we use for worship ourselves, or the Greek word that's applied to the worship of the church. And here's what, why this is significant to me. Throughout Jesus' life, he's worshipped multiple times by different individuals. Most of the time, Jesus was worshipped either in conjunction with a request that someone was making of him, such as was the case uh, when, uh, when the leper came to him seeking healing, or when, uh, when one individual's daughter had died and was asking for Jesus' Jesus's intervention, or when that Canaanite woman's child had uh, Past or child was, uh, was ill and needed to be healed, or even when John and James's mother came and requested for him to let them sit on his right and left side, there are many times where Jesus is worshipped in conjunction with somebody making a request of him. And there are many times Jesus is worshipped in his life in response to something miraculous that he does. So, for instance, the, the disciples worship him after he walked on water, or they worship him after his resurrection appearances, or, or at his ascension. Or, or think about when Legion was begging for mercy, or the blind man had been healed. Jesus is worshipped in response to things he's done. But on this occasion, these wise men show up to worship a child, They worship Jesus not because they were seeking something from him, because he's a child. There's nothing he can do for them in that stage. And they're not there to worship him because of something he's done, because he's a child. He hasn't done anything yet. On this occasion, Jesus was worshipped solely because of who he is. And this might be the one and only time during his earthly existence that he was worshipped with no strings attached. No request to be made. No response to a miracle. They're just there to worship him because of his identity. And that's it. There's something beautiful about that. And there's something that should be communicated to me about that. That my worship of Jesus should not just be tied to what he can do for me. That, that some of my worship needs to be just because of him, his identity, his nature, his character. And I, I think oftentimes I get caught up in the what has he done for me type mentality and forget that Jesus is deserving of worship just because of who he is, regardless of what he's done. And these, these wise men remind us of that. And I think it's worth noting that these wise men bring specific gifts as part of their worship of Jesus. And you are likely familiar with those, those gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now gold we get. How familiar are you with frankincense and myrrh? Uh, if you're into essential oils, you, you might be familiar with frankincense in particular. But we don't use frankincense and myrrh very often today. We, we'd love to accumulate some gold, but the other elements aren't that familiar to us. So I want to take a moment and, and talk about their significance. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All three of these are gifts that you would give to royalty. Gold, we understand. We understand its value. We understand that it, it serves as forms of currency. It serves in forms of decoration during this age. Frankincense is, is an aromatic resin. It's used in incense. It's used in perfumes. It's obtained from uh, trees. Uh, the the uh, frankincense is ultimately something that produces a sweet and fragrant, fragrant smell when burned. And according to Scripture, it was used on the sacrifices that were offered to God. You can read about some of these in Exodus chapter 30 and Leviticus chapter 2. This was something that was intended to provide a pleasing aroma and often was, sacrif- was used in these sacrifices made to God. This is a gift you give to royalty. In addition to frankincense, you have myrrh. Myrrh is a natural gum extracted from a number of small thorny trees 
Uh, myrrh resin has been used throughout history as a perfume, an incense, and a medicine, an antiseptic of sorts. According to Scripture, it made an, a, a, a perfume which was sometimes used to scent beds, according to Proverbs chapter 7, or garments, Psalm chapter 45. It was an ingredient in some kinds of incense and served as an anointing oil. In fact, uh, when you get to the end of Jesus' life, it's interesting that myrrh will be used there as part of the anesthetic drink that was given to him on the cross and as an embalming incense in the preparation of his body for burial. So myrrh has significant uses. It too is something associated with a gift for royalty. These three items, when brought by the wise men, they're not chosen at random. They're not just, hey, we have some of this left over. Let's take this. These were selected intentionally because they communicated Jesus' kingship. Remember, they've come to worship the king of the Jews, so they bring gifts to honor the new king, gifts that are associated with something you would give nobility. And all three of the gifts honor him in that way. Here's what I found, find interesting. These gifts seem to allude specifically to a messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, the first six verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Epheth, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. There seems to be in these gifts an allusion to messianic prophecy. There also seems to be in these gifts a reminder of the gifts that the Queen of Sheba brought to David. In 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 2, we're told that the Queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem with, a, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. Remember, Jesus in the genealogy, particularly from Matthew, is being set up as the, the, true, um, king, the true descendant of David the king. And here he is receiving gifts that mimic those brought by the queen of Sheba to David when he was king. These gifts were not selected at random. There was intention behind them. And one thing that has always made me ponder is what happened to these gifts. You know, we have this indication that Joseph and Mary were not well off when they go to present Jesus at the temple and to go through the purification process, there's this mention of them fulfilling the obligation using turtle doves or pigeons. When you go back to the Leviticus account, when you go back to Leviticus and read the requirements, the requirement starts with a lamb, but if you can't afford a lamb, you can use the turtle doves or the pigeons. It seems to be an indicator that Joseph and Mary weren't well off. They had to settle for the less expensive sacrificial option. Now this gold and this frankincense and this myrrh are brought, and when you read the ministry of Jesus, you don't get the picture that he was making a ton of money out there in his ministry. I mean, you have Judas at the end of, the, of the, the ministry of Jesus getting upset because this perfume could have been sold and could have funded more. 
So I've always wondered what happened to those gifts. Did they provide some financial security for Joseph, Mary, and the family? Were they, were they, were they kept as heirlooms for the family that were passed down through generations? I've always wondered what happened to those gifts. Nothing significant there, just my own mind wondering how they were used, when they were used, that sort of thing. One last thing I want to mention tonight has to do with Herod and his reaction to all of this. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3 says that Herod was troubled by the news of Jesus' birth. And verse 16, as we've already mentioned, informs us that after he realized the wise men had tricked him, he became furious and ordered the execution of all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Now, one thing to consider is how many children were likely killed by Herod? Bethlehem was a small town in a rural area. And so most scholars you encounter estimate that the number of children that were killed were not nearly as many as have been promulgated through the years. What have you heard? How many kids have you heard were killed as part of the massacre of the innocents? Anybody? Anybody ever heard numbers? 60? Have you ever heard hundreds or thousands? Have you ever assumed hundreds or thousands? Well, there's no secular record of this incident. And it's assumed that the reason that there's no a secular historian like Josephus writing about this is because it was such an insignificant, violent event in the life of someone who was always violent. Herod is notorious for killing any threat to his throne. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his wife, his favorite wife. And he killed his three eldest sons all because he thought they were going to try to take his throne. One emperor said he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's child, because Herod was that violent. And that insane, ultimately. So, we don't have a lot of information about this outside of Scripture, in part because it happened in a very small place and during the reign of someone who did this kind of thing all the time. And scholars have estimated, that based on the, the uh, assumed population of Bethlehem in the first century, that somewhere between 20 and 40 children were likely killed. Now, any innocent child being killed for a reason like this is a tragedy. So let's not underestimate that. But the numbers that often get conflated in regards to how many were killed at this time because it's often compared to the events that happened in Egypt at the birth of Moses in Exodus. Thankfully, there probably weren't that many innocent children killed, not nearly as many as you might find in more recent cultural events such as genocides in countries around the world or even when it comes to something like abortion. But still, there were a number of innocent children that were killed by the ha at the hands of a, of a violent, evil man when Jesus was born. And the only reason Jesus escapes this is because God intervened to provide direction to, to Joseph to relocate to Egypt for a time. Herod's reaction is all about the fact that Jesus is identified by those wise men as he who has been born king of the Jews. Herod was an illegitimate king of the Jews. He bore that title. It was given to him by Rome because he had sided with Rome to take back the region of Palestine from some invaders who had captured it from his predecessor. And he helped earn back Palestine for Rome and 
in reward, they gave him the title king of the Jews in a significant territory there, and he was their ally. But as I mentioned, he would kill anyone who was a threat to his throne. Herod wasn't even fully Jewish. He was a half-Jew, half-Edomian, half-Jew. That means he was half a descendant of Edom, which is Esau, ultimately, and then half a descendant of Israel. And he was not liked by the Jewish people. Brother John. stop those babies from being killed? Is that what you're referring to? Yes, but you know, with the children with Herod sending out this decree that all the children under two years of age be killed. And I often wonder, you know, and of course, I'm not tr trying to say we should read the mind of God, but why didn't the Lord intervene at that time? Yeah, which is the same question we ask September 11th, why didn't the Lord intervene? You know, th there's so many tragedies that happen throughout the world. Why didn't the Lord, inter why didn't the Lord intervene in, in uh, Rwanda when there was a genocide? And, and why didn't the Lord intervene during uh, World War II with the Holocaust? Why did we'll never fully be, we'll never be able to answer that, but it, it is a great, in this context, it, this one hurts because these are innocent babies being killed. Well, that's a possibility, but um, it does seem that Herod died very soon after these events. That this. That, that Herod did not live very long. And there are some estimates that Jesus uh, and his family only had to be in Egypt for a few months before they were able to return after the death of Herod. So, that, and that, that, there may be an element in there where we can say, well, okay, God didn't intervene to prevent any children from being killed. But he did ultimately intervene to some degree in, in, in taking Herod's life, because how long would Herod have gone? Um, but ultimately, Herod's concern is if Jesus can claim a birthright to the throne, that's a much more tremendous threat to his power and position than anyone that preceded Jesus. And so hearing that from these wise men, he has been born king of the Jews, is a big threat to Herod. And so that's why he's reacting so uh, violently here to stop Jesus from living in his own mind. Well, that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight, looking at these wise men and their visit. Uh, much more could be, have been said and studied, um, but I appreciate your time and your attention, and hopefully this class continues to be a, a blessing to us. We'll resume next week looking at the boy Jesus, uh, kind of a second part to his childhood, but looking at him uh, at 12 years old at the temple. Let's close out with a quick word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, thank you for another night of study. May we continue to be students of your word each and every day. May we live out your will in our lives, and may we represent you to the best of our ability. Bless us as we go through the rest of this week, and Lord, help us, help us to ever appreciate your Son. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen.